Okay, I'm speaking to Dr. Jason Copeland, who is a breast surgical oncologist. His correct cancer surgery of the breast is his area of subspecialty and interest. And he does his private practice at Andrews Memorial, and he also practices other places. Now, this is a very poignant discussion, a very relevant discussion, not only due to the month we're in, but which I don't mind saying is breast cancer month. I don't like to date these things, Jason, but I can say it's the 22nd of, of October today. And I think it was relevant since up to very recently, which is, I suppose, how we could jump into this. And let me just say welcome again, Jason, and thank you for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure, Ryan. Thank you for having me. So I, up to, I'd say two days ago, I had a patient who was in her 20s who... I was complaining that literally she said the word lump and she felt this sort of mobile thing, I'd say around two centimeters, and examined her. And uh, what I indicated to her is that this is more than likely something that is benign, is the term, or non cancerous. And typically, we love to remove them even though, because she was making the point that she'd rather, if, if she does not have to do surgery, uh, she would rather not do any kind of surgery. That is any kind of, she doesn't want a knife on her skin and so on. So sure. I just wondering too, if that, that advice, I must admit, was an impact of the way I know. So many moons ago, which I won't bother date myself, but... Was and and so was was going to be many months ago. So I was asking, is that advice still correct path? Um, you know, I I'd rather we not, you know, approach patients just because of their age to recommend that this is likely to be benign or not. Gotcha. So what you've been finding is that we have a lot of patients developing breast cancer in their twenties. And it's something that I'm seeing almost on a weekly basis because I do also um, serve as a clinical director of the Breast Oncology Clinic at KPH. So on the public side, we do see a lot of patients and also privately. And I, will, I can give you a few examples. Um, I had another 25-year-old uh, very recently as well with invasive carcinoma. She had bilateral breast cancer. Um, you know, and I've seen patients as young as 19 so, you know, we try to shy away from saying, you know, you know you're in your 20s, this is likely to be benign. What we recommend is a full assessment, including clinical examination, um, imaging, and sometimes even to biopsy these lesions. And if they're benign, then we can confidently advise a patient this is benign, you know, we can do surveillance and we don't have to, to, um, to try and excise it and put a cut on the breast, but then we are very, very sure as to what we are saying, because we don't want to be missing cancer in young women because cancer in young women tend to be very aggressive. You don't want to miss it. Right, you, you broke up a little about um, patients, a patient that was 25, 26, and even teenager, is that correct? Yes, so, quite a few patients in their 20s, and I've even had a 19-year-old uh, patient diagnosed with breast cancer. So we don't want to miss breast cancer in young women because it tends to be very aggressive. So what we'd want to do is to have that patient uh, fully examined and to have imaging done, and if necessary, even a biopsy of the lesion. And then we can confidently say if it is benign, then we can, you know, we can um, 
operative surveillance rather than surgery, but then we are confident in our diagnosis because we don't want to miss a cancer in a 20-year-old. That is really actually pretty frightening. And, and I noticed that, well, hopefully we'll get to this a little bit. I saw an academic paper. I don't know if you were the, the director of that paper as well, or uh, in which you discussed that regarding our Jamaican population. And the essence of it was, I think, if I'm not if I'm getting the gist of it right, is that we are seeing exactly what you're saying, that you're just seeing invasive cancers a little earlier, for whatever the reason, you know. Yeah. The, the, you mentioned something, though. The imaging in a young patient, such as, they say, 20s, what we were training the preference due to the fibrous tissue in the breast was to do ultrasound when young and mammogram when older. And well, to complicate matters now, a colleague of mine was telling me, well, they're doing MRI at, uh, at Freddie Clark's place, Lippon Road. Um, and that's Dr. Dr. Freddie Clark. So I, I was Wondering what imaging do you do you recommend at that at this yeah, age? In young women with um, breast symptoms, yeah. we go with an ultrasound, and I mean very young women under the age of thirty. And what we found is that the ultrasound is more accurate than mammography in young women for picking up these lesions. Now, if she's over thirty years old, then she can get both ultrasound and mammogram as part of her initial workup. Um, when she has any sort of um, symptoms or any breast um, symptoms. The MRI plays a role when the other images are you know, indeterminate yes. or if we have patients who we know, uh, for example, are high risk of developing breast cancer and we're talking about screening, then we will use MRI as a screening tool much earlier, like age 25. So there are really diagnostic and screening purposes where we use MRIs. Diagnostic is really if the, the other imaging um, end up being somewhat indeterminate and we're not really sure, um, so we move on to a breast MRI. But for screening purposes, we can use it up front for women who are at very high risk of developing breast cancer. For example, those who have gene mutations. And if we have a woman who has had a formal breast cancer risk assessment done, which is something that we encourage for all women over the age of 30, that they can actually know their risk. If the risk is um, sufficiently high, then we recommend screening with breast MRIs as well. When in, what factors would, in, uh, would, would affect that risk? As in, what would make you... Sure. Um, so there's a, there's a model. There are various models there, breast cancer risk assessment tools. The one I commonly use is called a Tyra Cruzic, and it entails, you know, reproductive history, you know, age of age of menarche, menopause, number of children, what age you had your first. Um, it includes uh, previous breast biopsies if you had any done. It includes a baseline mammogram if you had one done, and then it's a computerized um, scoring that you get, and it actually gives you an estimate of your risk of developing breast cancer in the next ten years and also your lifetime risk of developing breast cancer. And it is compared to the average population. It's really based on the US population, that's the baseline, yeah. but a woman is able to get her risk and it's the most validated of the breast cancer risk assessment tools you know, worldwide. 
And if, for example, a woman has a lifetime risk of developing breast cancer greater than, say, 20%, that's somebody who you might consider using breast MRIs for as part of her screening. Um, if you understand the Jamaican population, the average risk of a woman developing breast cancer in Jamaica is 7% lifetime. So one in 15 or 7% lifetime. So if you do a risk score and she's greater than 20%, then we would use MRIs as part of her screening modality, along with mammograms, but we would include MRIs as well. I must admit my patients who in a perfect world would prefer MR because they are a bit afraid of the pain associated with mammogram. Mammogram sort of sandwich the breast between two plates. And not an eight in the past reason, I don't know, maybe a gentler knows that is the pain. I'm pain a lot. Of course, if yeah. you have more breast, you have more pain, less breast, not as much pain based on my little experience. But so I think I've been asked this and I said, well, I, I, it's good that we're talking about it. You know, if they could just do the MR instead of the mammogram. So, uh, well, that's a very, very, very interesting. A lot of patients actually come asking if they can do MRIs rather than mammograms. Right. So first, let me say that you have different mammograms that you can do. You have what we typically get done is what we call a 2D mammogram, two-dimensional mammogram. And that's the traditional ones that you get into views and it's sort of, you know, clamps on the breast. You can get what we call tomosynthesis or 3D mammograms which is a lot more comfortable for the patients. And the patients will tell you that that one is much more comfortable. It also is a better test in terms of the accuracy in young women, young women who have dense breasts. The 3D actually works better than the 2D. Um, it's, a, it's approximately twice the cost of a regular mammogram. So if a regular mammogram is about nine to $10,000, the 3D is probably about $20,000. More comfortable than the 2D. So there's that. And in young women, we tend to recommend the 3D mammograms. Um, in terms of the breast MRI, breast MRI can be used. It's, it's actually more sensitive than the mammograms. It's overall a better screening test. The problem with the MRI is very expensive. And as such, it would not be cost effective for you to use that as a broad policy to say, we're going to switch to breast MRIs as your your go-to tool for screening. No way in the world does that because it's too expensive. Uh, breast MRI is probably about seven dollars to $80,000. Mm -hmm. And of course, the mammogram is about nine dollars to $10,000. So it's a, it's a significant outlay for a screening tool that you're going to have to do every single year. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the, the main reason why you know, MRI is not the screening modality of choice unless the patient has high-risk disease where now it's actually cost-effective in that patient because the risk of developing breast cancer is so high. The 3D mammograms are offered where? Um, 3D mammography, yes. yes, it is offered. Uh, two places I'm aware of currently. That's one Ripon Road, um, Dr. Freddie Clark, yes. X-ray diagnostics. Yes. And um, the other place is the Women's Imaging Center at the University Hospital of the West Indies. That would be Daria's place. Or, well, Daria, I guess she's still the chief over there, Otto Cornwall. Yes, she is. She is. Yeah. Um, I am I'm, I'm aware that the, that the Kingston Public Hospital and the um, Cornwall Regional Hospital should be getting um, 3D mammograms 
um, up and running, hopefully at some point in time this year. Um, so you know that will also be um, another service you know that can be that can be offered in terms of access to 3D mammograms. And, uh, and like our government keep the uh, keep it and Conorigo that would be without cost vision. As far as I know, I, I I'm not able to say as right. yet. You know, I guess yes. the policymakers will have to determine. You know how, exactly how that will be, how that will be administered. Yeah, so you you hit the nail on the head with the cost of this. And I was really I was partially being facetious because this that particular patient did not know the cost of these things. I said, well, you know, there is a financial component and it is quite relevant. So yeah. I think, uh, as you said, that will be sometime in the future when you know, due to economies of scale, the MRs become, and then how MR is done you know, based on what. The, the equipment is such a challenge to maintain and so there are some other factors there at play yes, which that's maybe whilst we are practicing but we'll see how our life turns out I don't know if that and will then, then of course you have to think about the access to MRIs MRIs um, not as readily available so if you use that as a screening modality then persons will be waiting I guess months upon months upon months yes. just to get um, the breast cancer screening done so in many ways it's not viable as a screening modality outside of cost but also availability and these are some of the some of them that we got into this a little bit because there are various ages that are thrown out there as it pertains to screening in lieu of, I understand we don't have a formal screening program locally. In lieu of that, do you give people a number as as an age, or do you how do you how do you recommend people go about their screening? The question is, what age would what I recommend? Yes. So again, one of the things that we don't do is enough of is what is breast cancer risk assessment. Yes. Okay. So the recommendation for screening should not just be abroad. You know, you're at 40 or 50, you should start. Yeah. It really should start with a risk assessment of every individual patient or, okay. you know, the woman. So she comes in, she gets a risk assessment done. So first thing you ascribe a risk. Mm -hmm. If he's at average risk of yeah. developing breast cancer, and that means in Jamaica, somewhere about 7% lifetime, then okay. that woman we recommend that she starts with annual mammograms, that's mammograms every year, beginning at the age of 40. Yes. Still what we recommend in Jamaica. Yes. Now, when she does the mammogram, if the density of the breast is particularly high, then we would add breast ultrasound as part of her recommendations. Because when the breast is fairly dense, the sensitivity or the accuracy of the mammogram falls and you can miss um, cancers in that case. So we would add breast ultrasound with the mammograms for that average woman beginning at age. It is that when we do the risk assessment, the patient falls in a high risk um, group, then we will start for breast cancer screening before 40. Okay. And the recommendations will really depend on how high your risk is. Sometimes we start as early as age 25, and we start with breast MRIs at that age, because we don't do mammograms at 25. Yes. Not at age 30, depending on the risk again. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, we use breast MRI as well as mammograms. So uh, the point is, is not as simple 
simple as you're 40. If it's starting mammogram, the first thing, you must know what risk you're at because we could be screening you, but screening you um, inadequately or inaccurately if we just say everybody at 40 go and get screening. Sometimes we resort to that because, of course, you know we don't have enough persons doing risk assessment and ascribing risk, et cetera. So it's better to at least do that. But strictly speaking, you really should be ascribing risk and then make recommendations for screening. The risk assessment sounds extremely useful. I think I've encountered this two million years ago when I was training. I'm wondering, is it good or at what age would you ask young ladies to do their risk asse- assessment? Once she's over 30, she can have a risk assessment done. Okay. Because well, I suppose if you had a lump before that, you would get it done at that time. Well, yeah, you can you can get a risk assessment done even with a benign lesion if you have a benign lump. There's there are different risk assessment tools, and there are some that start at 35 and some that starts at 30, depending on what you're using. But um, even if you have a lump in the breast, once it's not cancer, you can have a breast cancer risk assessment done, so you can understand your your risk going forward. So with the benign lesions, if we have established that it's benign, we've done a requisite testing, examination, investigation, and biopsy. This biopsy in a smaller lesion, what type would would be performed? By the way. Sorry, I didn't get the question. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the type of biopsy for our benign or if, if we have done our investigations, we've examined, and it seems as if it is benign or, or even not. What type of biopsy would be done on a smaller lesion, I suppose, right. is the best so, way to ask. If you have a lesion that you have imaged and on imaging and yes. clinically from the examination and yes. from the imaging, it looks benign, then you have the options of doing a fine needle biopsy or you can do a core needle biopsy. The fine needle tends to be a little bit less expensive or more cost-effective if the lesion and the features of the lesion looks benign. However, if you have a lesion that looks suspicious, we recommend going ahead with a core needle biopsy, which is a bigger needle, um, slightly more expensive because of the apparatus that you have to use. But if the lesion looks in any way suspicious, we recommend a core biopsy because you get a lot more information. If this is a cancer, you get a lot more information about the cancer from a core biopsy than you would from a fine needle biopsy. And so you have, you're able to make better decisions for that patient from a core. But if it looks benign, then either fine or core will work. But um, if you think it's suspicious, you go ahead with a core needle biopsy. If it looks benign, plain devil's advocate, why not just the excision on biopsy, remove the entire lump? So that is that is an option as well. Um, and that's usually a discussion that you have for the patient. There's some women that will tell you, Doc, I want it out. It looks benign, but I don't want you to biopsy it and so forth. I want it out, provided that the features look benign. But there are some women who will say, well, Doc, you know, if it is benign, I don't want to cut on my breast. So uh, if you can nearly then find out, then do that and tell me so I have all the information available to me to make the best decision for myself. So there's also that component and there's a lot of you know uh, decision-making for the patient and shared decision-making, but you always want to give the patient as much 
um, accurate information as possible that she can make the best decision for herself. Gotcha. I had a patient just that essentially had not done much in the way of any kind of screening in her life. I would say she was in her 40s. I think I could put it at 44 if I'm remembering correctly, about two years ago. And she discovered this lump. And for my, my examination, I was unhappy with how it felt and size and a little tethered to the skin somewhat, as, as attached to the skin. And so uh, I would say around four centimeters. So I sent her to do her mammogram. And sure enough, mammogram was suspicious. And essentially, I think it, I don't want to misrepresent this, but she at the university or KPH, she had to do her procedure. Or she asked me, because it was strongly suggested she had to do this procedure to sort of get rid of it. And that procedure was a mastectomy or a mastectomy. And unfortunately, the, I would, I'll cut to the chase. Eventually, she passed very quickly. Oh. Very quickly. And I sort of one of our very nice patients. So I'm wondering, you know, this I suppose this is really a staging question. Because when I examined her, I never felt anything in her axillaries under her arms. I just felt this thing which I would say nearby the nipple, on I'd say of four centimeters. I can see her face now and she went and she came back to me and asked me to if she should do this thing and I said yes. So but I'd say in a month or two, she was gone. So, well, if, yeah, it's sort of really tough. And, you know, sometimes histology, so if you can just deviate a little bit, sometimes histology in government and even at university tends to, it can not move as fast as you'd like yes. sometimes. And so I just, you know, they have all sorts of thoughts. You know, maybe the guys never got, had all the info to do some more with her. Who knows? But the in terms of what, I, I am assuming that that was advanced. So uh, I'm really asking what kind of stages and what types, if any, would, would be so aggressive? So one of the things that we... Perhaps the most important thing that we've learned about breast cancer over the past um, two decades or so is really the molecular um, subtypes of breast cancer. We used to treat breast cancer as just a single disease and every patient get the same thing. Mastectomy is done for all patients and we take the lip nodes uh, from out of the axilla, right? Yes. We now know that we have different molecular subtypes or biological subtypes of breast cancer. And that, along with the stage, really dictates the outcomes for these patients. So you have some very aggressive ones, rapidly growing, such as the triple negative type, and they have a high rate of um, dissemination, uh, spread to different organs, and they have a high rate of recurrence. And you also have the, the so-called HER2 type, which similarly is very aggressive, high rates of dissemination to other organs like the brain and the liver, and also high rates of recurrence. So those are two particular bad ones that we have, we have come across. 
And unfortunately, in Jamaica, the triple negative type, we are seeing twice the rates of triple negative breast cancer than what they are seeing, for example, in the United States. So it's a combination of the stage at a time of presentation along with the molecular subtype that's really going to dictate what happens to these patients. We are seeing a lot of patients presenting with late stage. For example, stage three breast cancer is probably about 40, 45% of our patients are presenting with stage three. And then we have a lot of patients with the triple negative type. So when you put those two things together, you'll realize that a lot of our patients, we have, we have twice the, two to three times, sorry, the mortality rate than they see in the US because of some of these factors. So it would have been very interesting to find out, you know, what subtype she had and that sort of thing. But I suspect she had a very aggressive subtype of breast cancer. Is it really something that really hit me very hard? And uh, really, it's something I thought about a lot, uh, really. Her husband used to come with her and he looked like half the person he came to turn me. He had on some weight and basically the, I suppose, the concern in the time said really something that early uh, generally every time this uh, month rolls around i think about it a lot uh, so i appreciate that so at least that shed some light i came up i came across this molecular classification scheme and when you mentioned stage three then we should complete that part of the discussion stage two would be local spread if i recall stage three would be oh, the difference between three and four would be so stage four is where you have metastases you have disease that has spread outside of the breast to the lung or to the bone the liver to the brain etc that would be stage four and of course with stage four that's not um, breast cancer that we can cure Uh, we can treat it and we can manage and we can prolong longevity but that's not breast cancer that typically we can cure now you do have stage three or what we refer to as locally advanced where there's perhaps a large mass in the breast, it has spread to the lymph nodes as well. Those patients, um, we can offer, a lot of those patients can be offered cure with timely and appropriate multidisciplinary management. Um, But a stage three patient can easily progress to a stage four. So the mortality for those patients tend to be high as well. Sorry, go ahead. Then we have what we call early breast cancer types, which would include the stage zero, the stage one, and the stage two. Those are the ones that have the best outcomes. And if we can get more women presenting with that early stage breast cancer, you know, the overall outcome in our population will be a lot better. It's easier to manage. The treatment is not as disfiguring and not as morbid as when they present um, later. So well, I suppose we should continue along the same. Stage zero would be what exactly? Well, stage zero is what we recall, um, Dr. Carcinoma in side two or the DCIS. Yes. That is um, where we have very early breast cancer where there are cancer cells, but they are limited to the ductal system. They haven't breached that membrane, that scaffolding that holds the cells together. And that's very early. Those do not tend to spread to lymph nodes or to spread to distant organs. The problem with them is that they may go on to become what we call invasive breast cancer, where they breach that membrane or that scaffolding and then can become stage one, two, three, et cetera. So um, when we see Dr. Carson Mensah, though it's early, we still have to treat it because it can progress. 
this has to be diagnosed on imaging mainly then a biopsy we it's still diagnosed on biopsy we usually oh, see these patients are usually picked up on mammographic screening and that's the the good thing about screening you can pick up breast cancer when it is stage zero if you do the mammographic screening if you don't then typically in all women we're going to pick them up when the lesions become palpable and yet very often this is a stage one two three etc but with the mammography the screening mammograms we can pick up these patients um at this ISR stage zero breast cancer. The screening program that I mentioned that more than one radiologist, their point of view is that there's no real program locally. Is that a fact? I just wonder. And this is asking your opinion. Uh, how can yeah. we initiate that? And why, why have we done this up to this time? Yeah, that's a fact. We don't have any widespread population-based uh, breast cancer screening programs um, in Jamaica or in the Caribbean that I'm aware of. Um, and I think that really comes down to um, the policy. It takes, you know, you would have to have an initiative where we have enough uh, mammography centers and we have funding to basically, because what you're going to do here is to have um, you know, persons coming in to get their mammograms done. And preferentially, these mammograms should be covered by some sort of mechanisms um, involving, I guess it will involve the government, maybe some private sector partnership as well, but it have to be paid for somehow. Mm. And um, I think that is the perhaps the biggest hurdle. And of course, our population would have to be appropriately educated about mammography, you know, at a public health level, that will actually have a good pickup of, um, so it, it's gonna take a lot, but we don't currently have any um, population-based mammographic screening programs here. And I suspect that will, the impact will be felt because if we engage in this activity, these rates, these are some very impressive rates, everybody listening to this can Google this paper uh, Dr. Copeland um, at PUBMED is PubMed. It's a free article which anybody has any problems with medical jargon. You can just read the conclusion. It's a very interesting conclusion. But the, uh, uh, the idea behind these programs is that these numbers should fall. That, that, that is the whole principle, correct? In terms of the, the mortality rate? Right, the mortality. Yeah, so in countries where you have, um, you know, large population-based mammographic screening, what they have reported consistently is decrease in breast cancer mortality somewhere between 25 and up to 40%. Now, we know it's not just the screening, but the screening allows for much earlier detection. And it also, you need to have a system in place where you have um, dedicated physicians that can offer multidisciplinary care so the early detection through screening, along with um, enhance in the in the treatment, timely and enhanced treatment, will actually result in significant decrease in, um, in breast cancer mortality. So that is something that we really need to be doing. The uh, the global, the WHO actually currently has a global breast cancer initiative, where they are trying to look at breast cancer, not just based on regions where you may have a high income regions and they are doing pretty well 
you know, they're seeing significant reduction in their breast cancer mortality rates over the past 25 years. And then you have developing countries where the breast cancer mortality rate keeps climbing. So the WHO really wants to look at breast cancer from a global perspective and to see how globally they can decrease breast cancer mortality rate um, throughout the world. Their projection is a 2.5% reduction per year, which they estimate will save about 2.5 million lives over the next 20 years. It's quite an ambitious program and um, it's going to take a lot, I think, from you know policymakers, especially in developing countries, to get their act together when it comes on to screening, early detection, and preventing delays in diagnosis. As you had mentioned before about the time to get in the histology, that's a significant hurdle that we still have. And that is one of the things that would have to be corrected as well. The... I just want to touch on a few more things, Jason. I know you have to go soon. The, I got asked this recently. Angelina Jolie, a famous actress, she did something rather dramatic in which she removed not one but both breasts because I believe it was her genetic makeup, um, this BRCA gene. And could you give, is there, um, role for this even locally um, what are your views on that yes um so you do have these genetic mutations in in that particular case that was a brca mutation a breast cancer gene mutation if you have that mutation your lifetime risk of developing breast cancer is somewhere between 70 and 80 percent remember i said before the lifetime risk of developing breast cancer in Jamaica is about 7%. Mm -hmm. yes. So if you have that gene mutation, it's 10 times as high. In the US, the lifetime risk of developing breast cancer, therefore the average woman is about 12, 13%. So that mutation confers a high, very high risk of developing breast cancer. Not a 100% guarantee, but as you can imagine, 70 to 80% is extremely high. So one of the things that we can offer women if you have that gene mutation is a prophylactic surgery, meaning that we do the surgery to remove the breast before the cancer develops. And the good thing is that you can do uh, prophylactic surgery where you save the nipple and the areola complex, we call it the nipple sparing mastectomy, and you can have immediate breast reconstruction at the same time. And that significantly reduces your risk of developing breast cancer by about 95%. So if you have that mutation, that is a standard of care treatment that we would offer. Yes. And that this, she did this procedure a few years back now. And so I, I suspect this has been the standard for some time now, then. Yes, it has been. The, I just want to touch on a few other things that I think we mentioned in, implicitly in our discussions, but there's a drug called tamoxifen and other, I think they're called that. That would be adjuvant after, or it could possibly be neoadjuvant as well. The other therapies that exist in treating breast other than surgery, the role for them and when. For example, well, we can start with tamoxifen, which I noticed I still have patients coming to me on it, and they've been told they have to be on it forever. So um, what, what are the roles for these other yeah, so many, many roles, especially for tamoxifen. We can use tamoxifen um, in a prophylactic sense, so before the cancer develops. Mm -hmm. 
you have women, we had mentioned again before about breast cancer risk assessment. You do have women who, when you do their breast cancer risk assessment, their risk is so high that you can actually place them on tamoxifen in a prophylactic sense, again, before the cancer develops. And what we have found is that this tamoxifen can decrease their risk of developing breast cancer by about 50%. Oh. So that is pretty significant. That is so good. Yes. We realize that at all. Well. Yeah. So again, why the risk assessment is important, and they have, they have proven this time and time again. If the patient now has breast cancer, we can use it to moxifen in two standard ways. We can give it to the patient before surgery. We call it neoadjuvant. We can give neoadjuvant hormone therapy, especially in patients who have locally advanced disease. If they are hormone receptor positive, if they have the hormones of the positive type of breast cancer, it's a different subtype then we can treat them with that tamoxifen or another similar drug um, before surgery so we can downstage that tumor and then allow us to do a better surgery. And of course, patients who have had surgery done um, can get tamoxifen adjuvantly, usually it's for a period of about five years. In some patients who have very high risk factors in terms of recurrence, we may give them for 10 years. Uh, but typically that's how we would use um, tamoxifen. I said, I told that patient, I don't think you have to beat because she just recently got it. I said, I think you need to double check that because I had the reference in front of me. So I never elaborated. So, all right. So we, we talked about tamoxifen and radiotherapy. Is there a, is there a role for yeah. that? Yeah. Radiation, radiation therapy is part of the, the, um, the armamentarium that we use and we use it very often for patients with breast cancer. We can use it. So when we do, when we carry out the surgical treatment for breast cancer, it's not just mastectomy. A lot of patients now can get what we call breast conservation surgeries if they present early enough where we can conserve the breast. Now, if we do breast conservation surgeries, we'd, we'd radiate the breast that is left behind, and that decreases the risk of recurrence. And that combination with breast conservation and radiation therapy is equivalent to doing the whole-time mastectomy in terms of survival and recurrence rate. So we use radiation therapy for patients who we conserve their breast, but also for patients who have locally advanced disease, where the disease involves the lymph nodes or is a um, stage three, for example, those patients will radiate their chest wall and so forth and the axilla after they've had their mastectomy done. So we can use the radiation to radiate those patients who have locally advanced disease. And we can also use it to radiate patients who have early breast cancer if we have conserved their breast. The knock-on or radiotherapy locally was the type of radiotherapy, even this type. Is that still of indicated of use? The type of the, radiation that we have? Right, the old uh, the cobalt machines versus... Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, the cobalt machines are being decommissioned um, worldwide. Because you know they they have newer technology now, and in particular the linear accelerator, which is able to more accurately deliver the radiation with less um, scatter and less side effects and, and you know adverse effects to other nearby organs. So that is really where um, radiation currently is, and we do have a few linear accelerators in Jamaica. I believe there are um, perhaps four linear accelerators in Jamaica at the moment. And so the, that, that is really, so we are able to offer standard of care radiation therapy 
the cobalt machines uh, are to be decommissioned, and this is a global thing. Uh, in terms of access, though, yes, we would need more linear accelerators. I don't think we have enough. In fact, none of the countries in the Caribbean currently have enough linear accelerators based on the recommendations from the International Atomic Energy Agency. We're all behind in terms of access to radiation therapy. But, um, but of course, we have no more than we used to have. So I guess that is a step in the right direction. Quite right. Uh, a couple more questions here, Jason. They, and uh, I think there is, uh, is there still, I encountered it, some immunotherapy that we're using as well, or? Yeah. Or not so, okay, still. We do have access to immune therapy. So for patients who have the, what we call the HER2 positive um, subtype of breast cancer, no, that's a different subtype that you mentioned was very aggressive. Um, they do have um, the we'll call an anti-HER2 drug called Herceptin. Um, it's available through an arrangement between the, the, um, the Jamaican government and the pharmaceutical company that, that makes the drug, um, Roche Pharmaceuticals. And um, we have been able to get patients to get that drug um, free of cost. Um, through the public sector, provided that they don't have metastatic um, HER2 positive disease. And it is it has been a game changer, really, because the HER2 type is a very aggressive type. And the drug itself is cost more than $5 million per year. But they're able to get it free of cost, provided they, they, they don't have metastatic disease coming through the public sector. All right, that's wonderful. Well, I think I have taken up enough of your time. I can't think. Thank you. Listen, I, I have a, this is just my final question, which I tend to ask a lot of the physicians and non-physicians that I interviewed. The, our healthcare system so wonderful in terms of, in my opinion, the manpower, the, the brains, the doctors, nurses, support staff, and we still are faced with some challenges. So we mentioned a few of the issues in your area here. I was just wondering, what do you think could be done to improve our healthcare locally? Not only as it pertains to your area of interest, but generally. For, for proper delivery of healthcare, you need something very strategic. I think it starts with, um, of course, infrastructure, uh, hospital infrastructure, um, technical infrastructure, having the right people in the right places, um, training and research. I think those are the, the big areas. Yes. When it comes down to the start of research, we don't do enough research locally to understand the type of diseases that we're seeing and how our disease, for example, is different from the type of disease that they are seeing elsewhere. And that's one of the things that I had done when it came, when it came on to breast cancer. We looked at breast cancer in Jamaica and said, how is it different to breast cancer that has been seen elsewhere? And we found significant difference and that enabled us to understand better um, the types of cancers that we're seeing. And we saw our cancers were far more aggressive. They were occurring in younger women at a later stage. And if that is the case, if we did not change how we deliver um, care to these breast cancer patients, our mortality rate is going to continue to be high. 
So then one of the things that we did was to formulate um, what we call a breast cancer treatment unit where we have the breast surgical oncologist, the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, reconstructive surgeon in the same sort of clinic setup that rather than have that fragmented sort of approach to treatment where the patient sees a surgeon and months later they see the medical oncologist and months later they see the radiation, they're able to see everybody relatively soon at the top end of their diagnosis and we can formulate a comprehensive plan for that patient. There's a similar model at the Breast Health Oncology Care Center at Andrews Memorial Hospital. And those were really born out of research that we understood our patient population a little bit better. And granted, this is how breast cancer is also treated in the first world. But um, again, we have to understand our population first. So that's research. Mm. Then there's training. Now, we, you have to have a strategic and a coordinated approach to training um, oncologists or cancer specialists including nurses, oncology nurses, including medical oncologists, including surgical oncologists. We do not have a policy that is strategically training um, these persons that I'm aware of. When I went off of my breast um, surgical oncology training, that was something that I wanted to do, that I pushed for. I found my fellowship, I went off, and I decided to come back, etc. Well, we need something more strategic coming through uh, the ministry, um, so we can have PPP. It's not just for breast cancer. We have colon cancer, we have prostate, etc. Um, so those are some pillars, I think, that we need to address. And of course, as I mentioned before, um, infrastructure, having equipment to work with and having the right personnel in place to, to enact these, these policies in a seamless, in a seamless manner. Mm. So I think those are some of the areas that we just need to focus on.